Now, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, um, this morning's passage is Titus 2, 11 through 14, and it'll be on the screen too. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. There's a wonderful Olympic story that happened many years ago back in 1964 when coincidentally enough the Olympics was being held in Tokyo, Japan as well. Uh, Billy Mills was his name, and when he stepped up to the f- starting line of the 10,000 meter, nobody knew who he was. Billy grew up in a reservation in South Dakota, Dakota, half Native American, half Caucasian. Well, at age 12, tragedy entered his life when his mother passed away and basically introduced him to a childhood of poverty and homelessness. But by, the, of course, the mid-60s when he was growing up was a time in which our nation had not really come to grips Uh, with some of the long-term effects that Indian displacement policies had had on that people group. And the vestiges of that led many in that group to struggle with substance abuse and with poverty and unemployment. But Mills, as a half-breed, felt a double sort of struggle from it in feeling alienated from both ethnicities of his parents. But after winning the 10,000 meter in Tokyo in a very dramatic fashion, everybody wanted to know his story. Well, it turned out that he had won a scholarship to the University of Kansas to be able to run. And he tells this wonderful story about coming home for the summers to uh, uh, work at at a garbage collection company in his hometown, collecting trash. Well, instead of actually riding the truck along with the other workers, he decided he would run alongside the truck. Well, his other uh, Lakota uh, uh, friends who were working on the truck as well took offense at it because they thought he didn't want to run with them because he was a half-breed and they were purebred. And he said, no, that's not the case. He said, actually, when I run along the truck, I can get an extra 15 miles on, uh, on garbage day. And so you had to, but you got to go back further to realize what exactly was motivating Mills. Because he tells the story of when he was 12 years old, right before his mother died, his mother had given him a book about Olympic champions. And the book explained that the reason why the ancient Olympics started was because the, the book had explained that the Olympians, the ancient Greeks believed, were chosen by the gods. And he said, ah, if I go to the Olympics and I become an Olympic champion, one day I can go back and see my beloved mother. That's what was motivating him. So when the moment came for him to run the race, one article put it this way. It said, trailing behind the two favored winners for most of the run, Mills had a sudden burst of speed in the last 30 yards. He saw an eagle on the jersey of the German runner that he passed, which reminded him of a conversation he had with his father when he was a boy. He said, I heard my dad's voice in my head saying, someday you will have the wings of an eagle. And I thought to myself, I think I can win this. And he did. Well, after the Olympics were over, Mills returned back to his reservation only to find that one of the men that he collected garbage with was now one of the elders in the tribe. And they bestowed on Mills the honor of being a warrior and gave him this eagle feather headdress and and gave him his own Lakota name that he would have forever. 
Later on, he was interviewed about it. He said, they were recognizing me at last and accepting my full identity. Then he said, it clearly was the greatest honor that's ever been bestowed on me. Now, I think that story is interesting for a number of levels, and one of which is because I think that there's a relation between what, what, what Mills had gone through and what Paul is trying to teach young Titus in our passage this morning. Like Scott said at the beginning of the service, we're going through a series on spiritual formation and looking how it is that God sort of grows us up into what we ought to be, how we pursue change in this place. And we've laid it out using this acrostic, Acts, Attend, Connect. And today we find that the Christian life requires training. All through the Bible, you find that the Bible assumes that just like an athlete or a skilled musician, Christians need to be trained in how to be one through a process of training and through discipline. But as soon as you enter this topic, you enter into a landmine, a landmine of potential problems. You've heard me say in many times how easy it is for Christian disciplines, Christian activities, to become the foundation and the reason why I believe I'm accepted by God. On the other hand, there seems to also be an inertia that makes me think that somehow becoming a Christian is so superficial that I can do so without any real dent being made in my lifestyle. But the Christian approach to change, though, from this passage, I think is perfectly laid out to avoid those two extremes. And we're going to look at it under three headings, as per usual. I want to look at the nature of the training, our motivation in training, and then our regimen of training. It looks like the first one, the, the, the nature of our training. Uh, you, you're going to unpack this by doing a little bit of a word study that starts there in verse 12 when we have it translated there, training us. That Greek word is the word paidemon, the root word of which is the word paideia, which you're going to hear in a lot of English words that we use every day. Paideia is just the Greek word for infant or child. This is where we get the word pediatrician from, a doctor to children. Uh, you look at other various forms of it, it can mean to instruct, it can mean to teach, to correct. There's actually some strains of the word that mean actually to whip or to strike and punish. Uh, this sort of is sometimes meant to strike, to correct. You could use the word as a get a spanking, <laughs> might be one translation in that regard. So the sense of that word train is to train up someone, even to chastise them, mostly with words, so that their character can be molded by that admonition. There's some places where the word paideia is used to describe how suffering works in the life of a Christian, that God is training us in those moments to deal with us. And so you put all this together, and what you realize Paul is saying is this, the grace of God that comes to God's people in the cross is here to treat you like a child. <laughs> And of course, as we might say slightly less offensively, that at least you need to be developed like someone who needs to learn something, like someone who needs to grow up. And I realize at first that's unflattering, but it's critical to understand how the Bible views us so that we can understand spiritual formation and the way in which this is so countercultural to the world around us. That's kind of what I want to highlight in this first point. Because if you realize that in our particular culture, beginning when you are born, you begin to get a message that I think was actually implanted in our culture probably some 50 years ago uh, with a very famous book and what became really the standard of child rearing in the 1960s by Dr. Spock. 
not the Star Trek guy, but Dr. Benjamin Spock, who was an American pediatrician and author of one of the best-selling books of all time, Baby and Child Care is what it was called. I, I think it would be very hard to overstate just how influential that book was on the American way of thinking about child rearing. Well, the gist of what Spock's book said was that your child will tell you what it needs. A parent's uh, uh, role then is to simply come alongside their child and to help the child realize who they really are. I honestly doubt, I wonder if even Spock uh, could have predicted how that particular philosophy of personhood would be taken in our day where we're living in a world now where, where parents are being encouraged to allow children to even define their own, albeit on a spectrum, gender, regardless of what their biological sex was assigned to them, coming alongside them in that way. But regardless of how you view that, the truth about you is inside of you. Does that make sense? It's what's inside of you where you find reality itself. That's this world's view. But I just want you to note how different that is from Paul's understanding. Because Paul is saying, no, our lives are to be molded by his design. There is nothing internally in us that sort of is going to lead us in a proper direction. I am not the best person to make judgment calls on my character. In God's view, I am to be molded into what he says I am in the word of God. And what I get from the body of Christ, other believing people who walk alongside me and tell me what it means to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. That is exactly the opposite of what we're being told today. Now, I realize that for some of you, you're getting uncomfortable, and that's because you're thinking to yourself, okay, are we about to start to talk about some of those weirdo, kind of hyper-discipleship, cultish kind of things that I feel like I've seen in, in documentaries on Netflix, where some megalomaniac pastor comes in and introduces this sort of hyper-discipleship methodology for people? How do we know that that's not what Paul is advocating here? Is he turning into one of those kinds of teachers? Well, I don't think so, simply because of our next point. We see the nature of training, but secondly, look at the motivation in training. I mean, literally, think about that question. How do we know that Paul is not just one of those weirdo cult leaders that's trying to brainwash me and all these followers into conformity with some sort of uh, bogus ideal life? Well, the answer to that question is the motivating force behind our training. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. The difference between the behaviorist cults and Paul's vision for spiritual formation is because it's rooted in the grace of God. That's the difference. And you better get used to this now because the Apostle Paul is a deeply gospel-centered growth teacher. Paul knows that only grace, only grace truly changes us. And this grace that comes into our lives is not just what we learned when we were converted, when we became Christians, and then later on we went to the more advanced stuff. No. The same grace that saved us, even when we were not a Christian, is the exact same grace that grows us up into the likeness of Jesus. That's what he's saying to Titus here. There's a very old book, 140 years old, called The School of Grace, written by a British guy named Hay Aiken. And he says this, he says, grace not only saves, but it undertakes our training. Grace bases all of her teaching upon the great facts in which her first grand revelation of herself was made and finds all of her teaching power in those mighty memories. 
Ooh, I like that phrase. Those mighty memories. Hold that thought for just a second. How does this work? Then we'll look at this, how fascinating it is. Because Paul sandwiches his encouragement to renounce ungodliness and live a self-controlled life between two revelations that God's people have. In verse 11, he says the grace of God has appeared. That's something that happened in the past. By the way, that Greek word for the word appeared there is the word epiphane. Do you hear the English word uh, epiphany in that? Paul is saying every Christian began their Christian life with an epiphany. The lights came on. They suddenly discovered a totally new way of relating to God, a completely new way of understanding themselves and even the world around them. How different was that? Well, I think it's pretty easy to, def- to discern that when you're born, you walk into a world of merit. Do you not? You're born and suddenly you realize if you do this, then you'll live. If you make good grades, you'll get into a good college. If you work hard, you'll get that promotion and then a raise and then all the money that you want. If you raise your kids right, they'll become well-adjusted adults who who don't embarrass you or whatever it is we, we claim for our children. But the problem with that way of thinking you find very quickly is it is a treadmill of despair. Because whenever I lock my sense of self-worth on the basis of my performance, that is when I'm up, I'm happy, when I've done well, when I've done what's right, but as soon as I fail, I'm depressed and crushed, you can only ride that roller coaster for so long. You can only do that before eventually you get exhausted. And either you look at the holiness of God and you diminish it by robbing the law of God of what it really says, Or you walk out of it all together and say, I just don't want to be any part of it. People take these paths all the time, and the older you get, the more tempting it is. Paul talks about that way of living life as what he calls living according to the law. In other words, there's only really two ways in the end to relate to God. You will either relate to him on the basis of law, or you will relate to him on the basis of grace. Those are the only two things. I think you could boil it down to the fact that there really are only two religions in the entire world. How about that for an oversimplification? Two religions in the world. Number one, either I live a good life and do my best and work really hard and hopefully, hopefully, hopefully God likes me and will save me when I die. Or I admit and I own in a profound way that I can never live a good life and humbly submit myself to his grace alone and then on the basis of that new status, then I learned to live what it, learned what it means to live a godly life. Those are the only two choices. It's Christianity and every other world religion. That's it. So what we see then is there's a second epiphany, though. There's an epiphany that happens in the past, but in verse 13, Paul says there's one in the future. Look what he says. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I love this. Paul says that bookending the life of any Christian, there was a moment in the past when the lights came on. Sometimes I think we, miss, we get a little misguided when we ask people to get up and, and tell their testimony. You ever been asked to do that? Tell me how the Lord found you. What, what is your testimony? I think in many ways it's probably better to look and say, tell me when the first time was when grace came alive to you. It reminded me of the great statement by Martin Luther as he's commenting on on Galatians. When he was talking about his own life, he said, you know, I lived a life of a monk without reproach. 
but I still felt that I was a sinner before God and had an extremely disturbed conscience. I couldn't believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I didn't love God. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, I murmured against him greatly. I was angry with God. But at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words in our text. Namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it's written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. A little flowery. Okay, maybe you're not wired like Martin Luther. But can you look back and identify a time in which all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this is talking about me. That's the epiphany, the revelation, the appearing that happens in our lives at the beginning of the outset of the Christian life. But the next question we ask is, what about tomorrow? What about the time after that? Well, what if I mess up tomorrow? Is God going to be done with me then? In other words, it's possible to have a, re a revelation in the past that still leaves me relating to God as if I'm always on probation. You know what I'm talking about? Well, you're okay now, but you better watch it because you never know what's going to happen next. No, no, no. Look what Paul is saying. Paul says there is a future epiphany that's yet to come. When Jesus appears, he will be blessed, he says. And his showing up is not going to be a curse to me, but a joy and a delight and a reuniting. Paul is saying not only is my past secure, but so is my future. Past, present, and future all secure in him. This is what led, now that we're quoting reformers this morning, to John Calvin saying, this therefore is the chief axis or the main hinge on which real religion turns. He says, unless you first of all grasp what your relationship to God is and the nature of his judgment concerning you, listen, you have no foundation on which to build piety before God. Did you catch that? If you don't have a foundation rooted in grace and mercy, there is no fertile soil that will grow up any kind of plant of real genuine piety and holiness and godliness. I think Billy Mills is a wonderful illustration of this. Where did he get his motivation to train? Well, it wasn't from somebody hanging over him, threatening to kick him out of the Olympics if he didn't train hard enough. No. What motivated him was this vision of seeing his mother again, of joy, and of his father encouraging him that he was going to have the wings of an eagle one day. And so look, have, use this as a little bit of a thought experiment this week. Ha, compare the motivation that Billy Mills has to run behind a garbage truck all summer long, coming from this lovely thought of his parents' affirmation on his behalf, Versus how you talk to yourself in your head when you fail. Compare and contrast those. Because I have long been convinced that we are not holy, not because we have insufficiently shamed ourselves. <laughs> but isn't that so often what we immediately turn to? I think the reason why we're not holy is because we have overly shamed ourselves with a voice that condemns us every time we even think of turning to God. That's the real culprit here. Have you ever stopped to consider that perhaps my lack of discipline is not because I've not kicked myself in the pants enough, 
But because somewhere, having cast him in the role of the one who is being harsh on me, I suddenly thought to myself, I don't think he has my best interest at heart. Which, by the way, was the original sin in Genesis chapter 3. But I digress. So that if this morning, right now, as we start talking about the grace of God and grace-rooted holiness, if there's something inside of you that's saying to yourself, well, yeah, 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 but you know, unless you could take that too far. I mean, we have to be holy. If that's the instinct of your heart this morning, and not an instinct to be moved almost to tears at remembering that moment when you were like, wow, he loves me regardless of my performance. If that, may, may I simply suggest to you very gently and graciously that maybe you're infected with the exact same spirit that is so antithetical to Paul's view of spiritual formation. Rooted in grace, Paul's method of transformation, it's the opposite of the cults. It's the very opposite. So that's the nature of training and the motivation of training. Let me mention just a couple words about a regimen of training. How is it that Christ's prayers has laid out before us what our training can look like? Well, our enthusiasm for grace should lead us someplace. And I think you have to begin by dealing with the fact that we live in a time where digital media is the most formative part of our culture, period. And our generation is being formed by influences. And I'll make this argument till the cows come home. That there is nothing like our generation that is as, and I'm going to use the word immersive, as what digital media has provided for us. I mean, think about where we are. Our digital media dominates the voice in our lives. News outlets are the ones who are painting the picture of the world. I now have access to oceans of information about almost everyone I know, and including the business and work that they've done, including digital photography of almost everything that they have done and their children that they have done. And it's all on a small rectangular piece of glass that I carry in my pocket or my purse. That's called immersive. (laughs) And so what I want to ask is if we're ever going to be formed by God's image of our ideal humanity, we at least have to have something that speaks into that sort of influence. And what you realize is, is therefore we've got to find a way of always figuring out how the Bible looks at the world. Because digital media is coming with a thousand different assumptions about the way in which the world works. We study the Bible so that we can see how the world really works from God's point of view. And what I get from the Bible is a narrative, a story about life, about humanity, that shows me the only way in which I really change. My friend Brian Habig says this, he goes, narrative drives lifestyle. It's a great little three-word sentence right there. Narrative drives lifestyle. The story you are believing about yourself now is the singular most influential factor in your spiritual formation and your training regimen for however you're seeking to train yourself. So, as a matter of practical significance, our church, through our adult education team, works very hard to develop what we have on Sundays as our Sunday school. You can expect that participation in Sunday school will put you in contact with the Bible. There are times in which we will offer those classes simply through books of the Bible on a verse-by-verse study basis. There's other times where we'll take kind of a 50,000-foot view of Scripture and try to identify the major themes that tie it all together. Other times we'll sort of pick a big topic and sort of pose it to the Scripture for answers. At the end of August, we're actually beginning a Sunday school curriculum that's been worked on extremely hard by Melvin Monica Vosigam. 
called, called our Foundations class. And we are going to ask every single member, if you ever want to be a part of what we're doing here, to go through this two years of curriculum on exactly what it means to be a faithful member of our church. Why? Because we want to hear what the Bible says. We want to root ourselves deeply in the narrative of Scripture as an alternative storyline about our humanity to speak into the great void of digital media's influence. But it's not just Sunday school. Secondly, there's our small group ministries. Our small group ministries come as a great way, not just to sort of study the Bible, which they all do, but to be with a, a group of people that can hold me accountable about it. And I don't mean accountable just to attend, but I mean accountable like to, to keep me encouraged when I get down. I would argue that this is the, uh, the, the, the motivation and the magic behind the CrossFit cult, CrossFit uh, community that we have uh, in our world. CrossFit, you know, the exercise uh, communities that have grown up, there's a couple of them here in the, in, um, in the city. What do they do? All those guys who are involved in CrossFit will say, it's the community that drove me, that pushes me on to train even better. So the point is, is there are offerings that we're putting out there in front of us so that we can train. But in the end, what I'm saying this morning is we have to keep the end in sight. Because here's the story, the training never stops. Doesn't matter this morning whether you're 15 or whether you're 95, the training never stops. From the moment that you breathe your last, we are still always training. And what, we, the, what motivates us in that moment is exactly what motivated Billy Mills. Look, after the Olympics was, were over, he got what he wanted at last because all of his life he lived in the awkwardness of being a half-breed, half-Native American, half-Caucasian, never really feeling at home in one place. But after the Olympics, after that great victory and triumph, he finally was a unified man. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn.
I, I always, yes, absolutely cheer for that. That was fantastic. <laughs> Our music is always great, but man, goodness gracious, that was wonderful, y'all. That all sounded great this morning. Hey, don't forget, uh, training uh, workout starts in about five minutes, which is our Sunday school class coming right after this. We hope you stick around and join us. Melvin will be diving into uh, our Sunday school class this morning, and we look forward to seeing you next week as well. But in the meantime, receive a good word from the Lord. And now to him who is able to save you by his grace and present you blameless before our God, through him may you be trained to be holy as beloved children of God. And all God's children said, amen. Go in peace.